During the early months of the pandemic, live theater shut down completely. Leslie Scott Jones, a theater director and producer, was looking for a way to continue her work. Grounds, a black cast, was born. You're thinking about leaving? For real? PJ, there is a reason there are only five full-time black professors here. They hire us because they want to claim that they're being diverse, culturally responsive, equitable, whatever the buzzword is at the moment. This fictional podcast follows five black professors at a predominantly white university in the South as they navigate work and life. There is no space outside of my own living room where I can be who I am. I always thought that if I played their game to a certain degree, you know, not too flamboyant, not too vanilla, I could find a niche that allowed me to exist as a black gay man with relative peace. This whole thing has shown me that I can't. How did we get here? Boats. From Virginia Humanities, this is With Good Reason. I'm Sarah McConnell. Today, contemporary theater in new and exciting forms. Leslie Scott Jones is a writer, playwright, and artist. She's artistic director of the Charlottesville Players Guild and associate curator of education and public programs at the Jefferson School African American Heritage Center. Leslie, tell me about Grounds, a black cast. You came up with this at a time when you couldn't do theater during the pandemic. Yes. I, like every other artist sitting at home, twiddling my thumbs, going crazy. And uh, I had done a web series with my friend Teresa Dalvest, who wrote a book of fan fiction um, about The Cosby Show and Bill Cosby. And I started thinking about the way that we look at Black life through TV shows um, and the formula that's always there right? It's always the main character who has, who's a good guy and just trying to, you know, go through life the best way he can. And he's got a best friend who is crazy and comes up with all these crazy ideas. And then there's either a wife or a girlfriend and maybe like two or three other tertiary characters. But this is the formula that that has been here since Amos and Andy, right? It went through Amos and Andy and then it went to Good Times and then What's Happening and into the Jeffersons and the Cosby Show. Like it's all the same formula. And I thought, well, how can I make that different? How can I change that formula? And having lots of friends that are professors, I was like, you know, I would I would like to try and dramatize their lives and 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 put their lives out there because they go through a lot of things that not many people know about. There are four main male characters yeah. and you're a female character. Yes. So I have a, a civil engineering professor. I have an ethnomusicologist, um, a medical researcher, and a professor of Russian literature. How important is it that they are at an historically predominantly white university in the South? Yes. And yet struggling with that predominantly white atmosphere and culture and bureaucracy is one aspect, but not the only aspect. Yes. And I wanted I wanted to give a special insight into the kind of insidiousness that happens when a black person is reliant on a predominantly white um, system for their livelihood, right? That is something that is within the Black experience that happens whether you are a cashier at Walmart or a professor at Stanford. Give me an example of what does happen to a professor at a white institution. Sure. Um, There are things that are universal, such as um, if a professor is doing research that has anything to do with the Black experience. It's called me-search, not research, right? It's automatically looked at as less than and not as rigorous. Um, There are always uh, conversations that happen in those rooms that a Black professor has to navigate differently because if something is said that denigrates them or their research or how they view the world – they can't be their full selves and answer that question, right? Because, one, if they don't have tenure, the people in that room are going to be responsible for deciding if they get it. 
And two, even if they have tenure, they still may have to work with those people and get things from them in order to complete their work. So there's always a navigation of how do you answer something that is and sometimes horribly problematic and not make enemies that would make your life and your livelihood horrible, right? It's a balancing act, but that's a balancing act that every Black person has to go through. Let's play a clip from Grounds, a Black cast, where two of the characters are really talking in a situation like that. Sure. Um, So there is uh, our professor, our ethnomusicologist, uh, Quasi, is struggling with deciding whether or not to stay at this university. What do you want from me? Do you think I'm overreacting? There's no question that Black people are under more stress than ever. Between the uptick in police killings, the pandemic, and being in quarantine for months, we are once again getting the brunt of this thing. You wouldn't be a human if you weren't reacting to it. I don't know if DC will be the panacea my sister believes it to be. Point. I'm used to living in the South. I grew up here, so my trauma response to it may not be any less impactful. I'm just used to it. Yes. I learned that when I was at Berkeley. But I think it would make me feel better to be near family. I get that. Well, now I get it. So you can tell, like, he he loves being at this university. He's found a home, He and he doesn't want to make the decision to leave based on the added thing of the pandemic, right? He, he wants this decision of his to be about his work and what's important to him. But at the same time, he's got to live there, and he's got to be in this environment that he now realizes because of the pandemic is so not for him. It was not built for him to thrive in. Um, and that's that's a decision that every Black professor at a predominantly white university has to contend with. When you're thinking of your audience, are you picturing mostly Black professors at predominantly white colleges and universities? Or do you think there's more appeal beyond just academia? Oh, there's absolutely appeal beyond academia um, because, one, what these professors are going through and living through is the experience of every Black person, period, in the world. Uh, And second, I also think that if a Black person who doesn't have a PhD will listen to this, then I think they will get a better understanding of Black professors. There is, um, there's always a divide between academia and quote-unquote regular people, right? Oh, you have a PhD, so you must be one, two, and three. But this show humanizes them in a way that integrates their intellect, right? So they're not special, quote-unquote, because of their PhD, They are special because they are human. They are special because they are navigating all of these different things and yet still find time for family, for friends, for, you know, going out together and creating a community that's authentic within their group. And that's something that anyone can relate to. Let's look at a scene from your character. You are P.J. Wiley. Yes. You are the dean of the African-American Studies Department. Yes. And? And so season two uh, finds P.J. in a really bad way. At the start of the pandemic, her husband and her daughter died in a car accident. She had planned for this next semester to be her sabbatical, and then it ended up being time off because of her life. So she's coming back after... Everyone else has taught during the pandemic for a semester, and she's trying to find her footing again. Um, And one of the ways she does that is she's asked to write an op-ed about what it's like being a Black professor. Can we hear a PJ monologue? Absolutely. Going from doctoral student to postdoctorate to teaching was a thrill. It was the realization of a dream. I followed in my father's footsteps. He wanted me to be a professor, to work in the same field, 
to go farther than he did. I had no idea what I was getting myself into. I had no idea that I would be facing a machine built to rid me of everything my father implanted inside me about my heritage, my ancestors, and my place in the world. Thank goodness I chose history. African history. So you can tell by this monologue, she has purposely chosen to walk a very fine line between her blackness and her education, right? Her blackness and how she uses it in her work. And that's a decision that is very personal. And it's also a decision that every Black professor has to make. Like, how are they going to integrate their Blackness into what they do and how they do it? Give me an example of an idea that came to you one week for an episode that you didn't know about before. Yeah, um, that was the really great thing about having story consultants. Um, So I had actual professors who were living this existence. And uh, I had like a three-hour conversation with one of my story consultants, uh, Dr. T.J. Talley, who teaches African history at San Diego, about tenure. Not only the amount of work, but the, the threat of that work amounting to nothing right? Because when you're on a tenure track, it's six years long, right? And you have you have check-ins every couple of years. And you not only have to teach classes, but you have to do your research and you have to do community work and you have to serve on a committee. And so it's all of this stuff that amounts to a certain number of hours, right? And if the committee decides that your research isn't rigorous enough or you haven't done enough community work or that, you know, you're just not up to, quote unquote, snuff in some way, they can deny you at any point in this process. And if you are denied, your your job is over. At the end of that year, you are fired and you have to go to another university and start the process all over again. That's so brutal. It's brutal. Your livelihood and your life's work is dependent on what someone else thinks about it. And especially, what if that person doesn't understand what you do? <laughs> right? right? Or thinks it's me-search. Or thinks it's me-search. Yeah. Right? So you are continually having to prove that you are worthy. TJ Talley, this man who spoke with you, is also the one who said, and this is on your website, when you're hired at one of these institutions, predominantly white institutions, yes. they want diversity, but not difference. Yeah. What does he mean by that? They want a black professor so that they can say they have a black professor, but they don't actually want that professor to bring their blackness to the job, right? They don't want that black professor to call them out on anything that they're doing, right? They don't actually, this is a system that has been in place for so long and they don't want to change it. You know, they, they want it. They're like, what? It's working fine. No, it's actually not. <laughs> it's it's really brutal and and can at times be very soul crushing to people who are not white and male and straight. Are you going to be permanently satisfied with the podcast format going forward, or do you miss theater? Oh well, I don't have to miss theater. Um, I'm I'm the artistic director of the Charlottesville Players Guild. So, uh, and we this season have produced more work than any other season. We did, we've doing five shows this season. Our last show will go up. Uh, it opens November 4th. All in person or hybrid? So the first three shows of the season were done virtually and the last two uh, are a hybrid. So there will be, so season subscribers and special guests will be in the audience. And um, if you purchase a ticket online, you'll be in the virtual audience. And what about the podcast? Grounds a Blackcast. Where can you hear it? Yeah, so you can find the podcast anywhere you find any other podcasts. Um, uh, It's on Anchor. It's on iTunes. It's on Google Play. Just look for Eugene Martin or just type in Grounds, a black cast, and it should come up. Leslie Scott Jones is a writer, playwright, and artist. She's artistic director of the Charlottesville Players Guild an associate curator of education and public programs at the Jefferson School African-American Heritage Center. 
Contemporary fiction these days is experimental, genre-crossing, and form-breaking. But one form that hasn't quite made it into fiction mainstream? Theater. Kate Kramer is a playwright, instructor at the University of Virginia College at Wise, and editor of 53rd State Press. She publishes new contemporary plays as books that are meant to be read by anybody, not just theatergoers. Kate, are they meant to be read as books are read, or do you imagine them being performed or read out loud mostly? I love to think of them being read as books are read, and I I certainly would love for them also to be performed. And there are several plays that we've published that um, actually really invite the reader to pick up the text and do a reading of the play in their living room, for instance. Um, but I, I personally think that it's um, it's exciting to think about being able to just be a, a, a reader, quiet in your living room, in your garden, um, encountering something that that might originally have been meant for the stage, but um, that can happen uh, can happen in the in the kind of theater of your of your mind. Can you give me an example of one that you've published that you love that maybe you could give us a little taste of? Yeah, yeah. I'll actually, since I mentioned uh, the idea of the living room, I'll read a, a little section from the People's Republic of Valerie, the living room edition. And this is a play by Kristen Cosmas um, that was initially a play for eight or nine people. And then she decided that it actually worked really, really well um, if she read the whole, to the, the most of the text of the play and her partner drew um, pictures on an overhead projector while she was reading it. And and then they started doing this in people's living rooms and they would host these um, these parties where the hosts would invite half of the audience and, and Kristen and her partner would invite the other half and they would have snacks and um, they would do this performance. So I'll read part one, surveillance. What is happening is I am entering very slowly. For a long time, you just hear the sound of my shoes on the floor while I am entering very slowly. When you see me, you see that I'm wearing a very elegant dress, a formal, a black either evening gown or cocktail dress. It keeps changing. Sometimes it goes all the way to the floor and sometimes it's just to the knee. Both versions are magnificent. I'm entering. I'm still entering. Okay, I'm here now. And you notice that I'm holding a tiny plastic cup of champagne. The cup is the kind you would take on a picnic if you were going on a blind picnic date. I'm holding one of those where we are now, which is here. <laughs> I love that. You totally have me. Is what you're doing at 53rd State Press and publishing these avant-garde plays unusual? I think, for instance, maybe growing up, I had books of Shakespeare, or maybe The Crucible, yeah. another really famous, well-worn place. Is it unusual to publish plays that are new and experimental like this? Totally, totally. I mean, I would say that there are three or four presses in the country um, that do this work. Um, and uh, Three Hole Press uh, out of Brooklyn and Plays in Verse are two that are also publishing um, this kind of avant-garde work, um, but but work that they're, they're really particularly thinking about somebody encountering it on the page. Um, and then there are other there are other publishers like um, Theater Communications Group publishes a lot of contemporary plays, but they're they're usually publishing work that has already had a, a long um, run on the stage. And um, a lot of the time, Fifty Third State Press is publishing material that um, has had you know a few readings or a really short lived performance. And that's part of what I think our work is, is actually to preserve um, for, for future generations these plays that, um, that only a very few people are actually going to see in person. You know, you can think about a group of anywhere from 15 to 99 people packed into a little, a little theater in Brooklyn for one or two nights, that's language that, that lives in those people's minds, but then it's, then it's kind of lost. And so, um, I want 53rd State Press to help those plays have a life beyond that, help them reach a future reader that I haven't met yet. The press is based in New York City, but you are now based in Appalachia in Southwest yeah. Virginia. What has that been like for you? Has that changed your work 
or the way you see theater? It's absolutely changed the way I see theater in that I am, um, I'm now making little voyages up to Brooklyn to see work um, that is happening up there. But I'm also uh, finding myself really looking outward beyond um, that small um, corner of downtown um, New York theater. And I'm learning that there are these experimental traditions all over the country. So one of the uh, one of the things that I have learned recently is um, there's a playwright, Eric N., who used to be the head of playwriting at Brown University. And for a while, he was hosting these conferences um, that he called the RAT conferences for regional American theater. But they they really thought of themselves as rats, um, you know, scavengers scurrying around and, um, you know, getting uh, supplies and material from wherever they could. Um, and they were these scrappy, tiny little theaters all over the country. And the idea was that you didn't need money. You don't need money to make theater. And you don't need money to make experimental theater. And experimental theater shouldn't be something only for people with money. Experimental theater is accessible to absolutely everyone. It just, it's just that you need to give them the right invitation. Anyway, so these people, they were really fostering the voices of playwrights who didn't have access to New York at the time. Um, So for instance, we just published this collection of plays by Daniel Alexander Jones, and um, he didn't produce his work in New York for a long, long time, even though now he's, you know, a big name. But at the time, it was, his work was happening at these tiny, gritty little theaters um, in, you know, in in Austin. Um, and, and theaters that were, that were just brave and willing to open themselves to something very new and very strange. Could you read a selection from one of his books that you've published? Yeah, I'll actually read from this play is called The Book of Daniel, and it's part of a sequence that he did, which he actually um, was performing he, uh, extemporaneously. So um, so all of this text that I'll read, he was... Um, He was generating it on the spot in in this particular performance. This section is in the voice of his grandmother, Bernice Leslie. Well, they came out to the camp for dinner, and I didn't think anything about anything, and they sat at the head table, and after we went down for the flag lowering, your father uh, came down with me. Your mother stayed up at head cap, and your father said, Mrs. Leslie, may I speak with you? And I thought it was quite symbolic. I had the flag, American flag in my arms, United States flag. And I said, sure, let's walk down to the lake. And he told me that your mother and father had grown quite um, fond of each other and he wanted my permission to marry her. Well, I said, there will be problems. I said, not only are you black, you're Catholic. Some of your family won't like it and some of my family won't like it. But as far as I'm concerned, you're a fine young man. My daughter has a lot of love to give someone and I'll be happy if she gives it to you. As simple as that. And we walked back up the hill and your mother had been pacing back and forth and they left immediately because they had to tell each other everything. But I always thought it was so symbolic that I had the flag in my arms when he asked me. Beautiful. And what does he accomplish with this play, do you think? I think it it enters into a tradition of of storytelling and of generating something on your feet, a jazz tradition, a kind of theatrical jazz tradition where um, you're improvising and riffing off of the other people in the room. And in this case, it's the audience. It's also the lighting design. It's the space that he's performing in. It's the the day that he performs. Um, And so I think it's partly that the the way that that jazz allows us to hear what it means to be alive. Where do you find your audience for these books? Who's grabbing them? Uh, I think that you know each of the artists that we publish has followers, people who have um, been seeing their shows are interested in their work. And those people, I think, get kind of gathered into our fold and I think become interested in the other work that we publish. Um, We're also reaching a lot of academic audiences. Um, 
one thing that I'm, uh, really excites me is that our books are taught in col- on college campuses across the country. Um, and so we're part of our audience is, I, I think, the next generation of theater makers, people who are, who are just now beginning to develop a sense of what the American theater could be down the line. And what do they find with 53rd State Press? What could American theater be? I think that American theater can be much more various and much weirder and also uh, (laughs) much funnier and maybe much more moving than some of the plays that people might be seeing on stages around the country. Um, There was a long time where the American theater was pretty um, attached to the well-made play, which is like a play that sort of does what you expect a play to do that has a, you know, um, follows a a carefully crafted storyline that um, causes you to cry, causes you to laugh and, and then takes you all the way to the end. And I, I think that the theater can inspire other emotions that, um, that we don't need to be focused on, you know, single issue plays or kitchen sink plays or living room plays or, or sofa plays that we can be, um, we can actually be making theater that forces us to imagine other possibilities that lives in a different register that moves really rapidly between lyrical language and the language of of the everyday, the verbatim text, like what you heard in Daniel's work. You're also a playwright yourself. Do you also love the spoken language? I do. I do. I think that that's probably what first led me into playwriting is um, I was actually working this um, weird telemarketing job. I was um, telemarketing for a, a theater and I was having these these phone conversations with people every night and I was listening to um, listening to the things they said to me on the phone and listening to the other callers in the room around me. And um, I was a really bad telemarketer, like a tragically bad <laughs> telemarketer because I spent my whole time just <laughs> taking notes on what I was hearing um, and not not selling any theater tickets at all. Um, Sounds so I, like a I, great play, but go it was, on. Yeah, yeah I, I was I was fired from that job, but it did um, it did launch me into um, into writing because I was I was so fascinated by what I was hearing. Well, Kate Kramer, this is delightful. Thank you for talking with me on With Good Reason. Thank you so much, Sarah. It's been an absolute delight. Kate Kramer is an English instructor at the University of Virginia College at Wise. She's also a playwright and editor of 53rd State Press. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. Welcome back to With Good Reason from Virginia Humanities. Jessica Del Vecchio is a theater professor at James Madison University. She says 10 years ago, if she asked a classroom of college students whether they were feminists, most of them would say no. But today, Del Vecchio's class, Feminism and Performance, has a long waiting list. Culture has shifted, and at the front lines of that shift, you'll find experimental theater. Jessica, you're writing about a new kind of experimental feminist theater that you first started noticing in New York City a while back. Tell me about your experience. Yeah, so I moved to New York City um, in the late 90s, and I was seeing a lot of experimental theater that was very interesting. Um, But it seemed to me to not be very engaged politically, um, and it certainly wasn't um, explicitly feminist. Um, And an example of that is a company that I love very much, Elevator Repair Service. They had done a number of shows, and I noticed that... um, an actor in the company, Susie Sokol, was playing male roles in a number of their pieces, um, and specifically Jack Kerouac in um, an amazing production called No Great Society. And so I interviewed the company about these choices, and I said, you know, I'm kind of reading, you know, a sort of feminist and queer um, politics here. And they said, you know, it's fine that you're reading that, but that's not what we're doing. We are just interested in aesthetics. Um, so, and that was kind of the vibe 
of experimental theater in New York in the early 2000s. And then I went away to grad school and I in Texas and I came back and I was outside of a theater in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. And I ran into Brooke O'Hara, who was the founder and director of a company called The Theater of a Two-Headed Calf, whose work I really loved Um, but whose work never really seemed to me to be explicitly feminist or queer. And she said to me, you'll be really interested. Um, Our company formed a dyke division and we're doing a live lesbian soap opera called Room for Cream and you should come. And it was this hilarious serial piece called Room for Cream set in an imagined lesbian feminist utopia hidden somewhere in the Berkshires. And it had a huge cast um, of, you know, very diverse people. And it was it sort of made me realize that there was a shift in experimental theater in New York City. Right. And what do you think was happening in Room for Cream? Room for Cream is really interesting because of the the way that it both relies on the label of lesbian and the specificity of that label, but then it also expands it to sort of encompass anyone who was living in Sappho and who was in this piece. Um, so it both needs that category, but then complicates that category. So for me, sitting in the audience and the way that the the show was staged, the audience could actually sit at tables that were part of Room for Cream, which was the name of the coffee shop in Sappho, where all of these people hung out. So you were really, you were invited to be a part of this community and imagine yourself in, you know, this lesbian feminist utopia that's free of any kind of divisions that might, you know, um, you know, divide us in real life. Why did you realize that this wasn't just a one-off, that this was the beginning of sort of a new thing in feminist theater? So then I saw a piece called Nurses in New England by the company Half Straddle, which was a theater company um, founded by uh, writer and director Tina Satter. And it was a um, a musical set <laughs> in... Uh, an all-nurse-run hospital where the women who work there do the very tough work of saving sick stuffed animals. And it was this very girly aesthetic. It was all pinks and purples and these pop songs and, um, you know, discussions of hair and makeup. Um, And it was also kind of a takeoff on Grey's Anatomy. And the lead um, character played by Jess Barbagallo was named Dr. Derek Shepard. He's the dreamy one, Dr. (laughs) Dr. McDreamy. Dr. McDreamy. Yeah. Yeah. And so then that's when I realized, okay, this is not, this isn't just a one-off. This is, this is something that, um, you know, all of a sudden companies are, claiming the label of feminist and making work that is explicitly feminist. Half Straddle also did a piece called In the Pony Palace Football that was a kind of abstract exploration of this all-women high school football team and cheerleading squad. Um, And it was um, really popular. It premiered to sold-out audiences at the Bushwick Star. And it was a kind of feminist reimagining of the television series Friday Night Lights, um, a critically acclaimed series about a small town in Texas and the high school football team. So Satter and Barbagallo had both um, recently rewatched the series and, you know, loved it. And so wanted to make a piece in which... um, the the football team was all women. And it's not a parody of Friday Night Lights. It's asking audiences to take that choice seriously. Help me think about your reaction to it. How did it help alter your perception of football and the capacity of women and others to engage? Yeah. So it, I mean, it made me think of two things. It made me reflect on a show like Friday Night Lights, which I also loved, um, and the representations, for example, of masculinity in that show and how, you know, how, how very limited our representations of gender are in popular culture. So it made me think about that. Um, and it also made me think about, um, these girly aesthetics in general and how um, adolescent girlhood is often dismissed and often 
seen as a joke in a way or seen as something silly like the the right. artifacts of girlhood and i and i was really moved by half straddle asking us to take those things seriously and to see it as a queer time an inherently queer time because this you know the all of the romances in this show are inherently queer so it's also asking us to see you know to to reimagine adolescence as an inherently queer identity forming time I think it, it, that this work is presenting us with the possibility of queerer, more feminist worlds, you know, and to allow an audience to imagine that, I think, in the space of the theater, allows you to imagine that in the real world as well. You've named this new kind of theater that you were seeing post-wave pop feminist theater? Yes. What does that mean? So in the U.S., moments of feminist engagement have traditionally been referred to as waves. So the first wave being the move for women's suffrage in the early 20th century, and then the second wave being the women's liberation movement of the late 60s, 70s, and early 80s, um, and then third wave being late 80s into the 90s. How would you describe the feminism of this wave? Yeah, so to, in terms of what I'm seeing in the theater, there's an intergenerational quality to this work. So, you know, in Room for Cream, we have a huge cast. We have casts of, of um, people from all different generations. This work is saying in order to move feminism forward, we need to listen to some of these voices from the past that may have been left out. And maybe the clearest example is um, Daniel Alexander Jones's performances as Joe Mama Jones, who is a diva from the 70s who's come back um, to do shows uh, today. And in the performance Blacklight, for example, she says, you know, things from the 60s still work, right? And she says, you know, I'm from the future. And so here we have this performer performing a character who's from the 60s and 70s, who's bringing a message to today's audiences about how to move feminism forward. So I feel like that's really, to me, the spirit of, of post-wave, like listen, you know, listen to this woman because things from the 60s still work. Right. And what about the pop part of the feminism? Yeah. So the other thing that I noticed about this work is that it's really in conversation with popular culture. Right. You know, Nurses in New England was in conversation with uh, Grey's Anatomy in the Pony Palace footballs in conversation with Friday Night Lights. I would say that Room for Cream is a kind of anti-L word in a way. So I think there's a love for popular culture that's evidenced in this work, but also a critique of it. Most of us don't attend experimental theater performance or don't have access to them. <laughs> How do you think the rest of us experience the impact of these early works? Yeah, so I think that what happens on experimental stages then sort of reaches the mainstream years later. Yeah. For example, in 2014, Beyonce on the very large stage at the VMAs with the word feminist in white lights behind her. And then, you know, to see articles being written about is feminism trendy now and that kind of thing. So to really see a shift in you know, mainstream culture from being this sort of feminism is over kind of thing to um, a real feminist engagement. So I think that we can we can sometimes look to experimental work for clues about what might happen in the larger culture in the next few years. Well, Jessica, thank you for talking with me on With Good Reason. Thank you so much for inviting me. Jessica Del Vecchio is a professor of theater at James Madison University. When we teach math to third graders, we use songs and games and movement. But step into a college math class, and you're likely to see rows of students staring ahead at a teacher talking. Kerrigan Sullivan is a theater professor at John Tyler Community College. She says that the interaction and games of improv can and should be used in college classrooms, regardless of the subject being taught. Kerrigan, teachers of young children use a lot of games and activities to help them not just learn, but also to enjoy learning. Why do you think by the time we hit college, there's almost none of that? 
You know, it's interesting because it's almost like we think that uh, kinesthetic learning or active learning just ends the second that you learn to read or that you develop a longer attention span so that you can maybe sit in a lecture and listen to information. But that's not true. That's that's kind of a fallacy. But for some reason, we think that being an adult means that you give up on play. That's so true. But do you actually <laughs> think that this form of active play and role-playing and improv in class works for all kinds of learning? Surely not math and chemistry and that sort. Well, so I think there's there's an interesting fallacy there. There was an article recently in the Harvard Gazette that did a survey on active learning, and they did it in, I believe, STEM classrooms, so very much, you know, science, technology, engineering, math. And half of them did these, like, stellar, amazing lectures, and the other professors did these active learning techniques. And they found that the students that actually had the active learning had learned more. However, they thought that they learned more from the stellar lectures. So there's two things about that that connect with your point. One is that there's a little bit of, we've kind of tricked ourselves into thinking that we learn better just by listening. But the opposite is actually true. And it doesn't matter necessarily the subject matter. You can always find a way to teach that in an active way. Now, it may not be the same way that a literature class might use it. But there's definitely ways to incorporate active learning and improvisation techniques into pretty much any discipline that you can think of. You know, I've had a lot of conversations with college professors in other disciplines, and I get a lot back, especially from the sort of STEM folks, like, well, this can't possibly work in chemistry, you know. But I think that if you actually sit down and have a conversation, that you can find ways that absolutely it can work in chemistry. I talk about some work of um, John P. Walters, who um, is a, he used a role-playing techniques to teach analytical chemistry. That worked really well. <laughs> so, you know, if you can use role-playing to teach analytic chemistry, I think you can probably make it work for pretty much anything. Give me an idea of what that would look like. How do you use role-playing to teach principles in chemistry? (laughs) Yeah, and you know, so a lot of this and what the Harvard folks did was basically a problem-solving approach using role-playing. So you have a real-life chemistry situation. So maybe there's an assembly line crisis and, you know, the mix of the pill has been adulterated and you've got to separate out the bronze alloy, you know, from the bronze bearing. How are you going to do that? And you set it up so one student might be the company CEO, another student might be the public relations director. So, and you give them a little bit of, of an idea of what their perspective on this is. And then you let them role play it out. So that's problem solving. And you could do that with pretty much anything. You've even said that principles as seemingly dry or cerebral as, let's say, the Pythagorean theorem Mm -hmm. in mathematics Mm -hmm. can be Mm -hmm. acted out by students. They can enjoy it and maybe remember it better. Right. There's several different approaches to it. I mean, you could take it and say like, okay, I want you to physically recreate this formula with your bodies. And it could almost just be like the YMCA thing where you're trying to make that formula physically. But even just that that involvement of the physicality, the kinesthetic involvement, and the idea of using your bodies to form these words, you know, or these, this formula, that could simply be one thing. And also, frankly, it's a lot of fun. People will laugh. You know, it's like if you're trying to make an equal sign, how do you do that? Uh, let's make a triangle together. How, what does that look like, you know? Um, So you could literally do it like that. You could also take the principle of it. So if you were looking at, I don't know, states of matter or something, or you're saying, okay, you guys walk around the classroom, you're water. Now I've just raised the temperature to 180 degrees. What happens? You know, what does that look like? If you give yourself and the students permission to to mess up or to look silly or to be weird or strange or however you want to term it, you know, once that happens and everybody kind of gets to a space where they can kind of be crazy together, there's some really wonderful connections that can happen. And honestly, every single semester that I teach improv, I am surprised and delighted by the ideas that the students bring in. For teachers of all sorts of different kinds of classes, you advise two things for all of them. And one is that they set the stage to make it a welcoming atmosphere. And the other thing is 
it's not easy for the teacher. You actually have to really know what you're doing. Yeah, you know, there's the, those two things are so important. So first of all, you know, the setting the space, if you have students come in on the first day and you just have them sit there and you read the syllabus to them, then that sets them up kind of automatically for a semester of, of passive listening, passive involvement, right? And also the biggest thing too is that that I, I think you have to really open yourself up as a teacher to be able to not say no to students and not shut them down, you know? Um, if you kind of have them and you're like, oh, well, that's not the right way to do that. That's not it, that the way to do this. They'll shut down pretty quickly. So you have to be very accepting and open of those first impulses and allow them to kind of, you know, flounder around, allow those mistakes to happen. And you're not always in charge in a way. You know, you're leading, you're guiding, but you're not this authoritarian figure with all the power and all of the control. So letting go of that control and that power it can feel pretty scary, especially when you're first doing it. I remember a child who came home weeping from the first day of middle school because mm-hmm. she'd gone to maybe six different teachers and gotten the same lecture about what the ground rules were going to be for the semester. <laughs> I yeah. love that you've apparently <laughs> taken the first day of school with your college students and given them the same ground rules, but done it in an improv way. <laughs> Absolutely. So when I first started teaching, you know, at the college level, there was this, I was told like, okay, well, so on the first day of class, you pretty much just go and you go over the syllabus, right? And I got to my acting class and I thought, this is this is ridiculous. This is the opposite of what I want these students to be doing this whole time. There's got to be a different way to do this. So I played um, syllabus charades with my students. I made up some sort of silly <laughs> headlines um, for my policies that were like, you know, crazed co-head learns that they've got, uh, you know, three absences from a tardy or whatever it is. And, you know, it'd be like a sort of mock headline about one of my policies or something that was important about the class, a major assignment, et cetera. And then I mixed those in with headlines like, uh, you know, vegan vampire attacks trees or, uh, <laughs> and then I put them in groups and they would act out these different headlines for the class. And honestly, it is, it is one of the most fun activities that I do. I really love it. And actually, you know, the syllabus is probably one of the driest, most academic documents that you could try to teach. So I figure if that works in the charades and interactive format, there's got to be a way to make anything else work. (laughs) Totally. Give me some of the other games you might play or suggest or you've seen played in different Mm -hmm. subjects. You know, one really, really simple sort of game concept is something called statues. The basic concept is just that you're going to make, have the students make statues with their bodies right physically so it can it can either be one single sort of like uh, freeze frame like here create this theory this this um, formula with your bodies and show it to the class or it could be something where it's like take six still shots and show me the battle of whatever you know I did this once with um with a class that we were studying Romeo and Juliet. And we had I had them do sort of six shots of the story. And then I let them rewrite the ending. <laughs> and and in those six frames. So it was like, first tell me what, what was actually on the page. Give me six shots of Romeo and Juliet. And the fun thing was, of course, you know, they come up with these, it's incredibly gruesome. Everybody, you know, is being poisoned and dying and all that. And then when they had them rewrite the ending, it was pretty much just like the letter was delivered and nobody died and everybody, you know, lived happily ever after. Or Ju- Romeo and Juliet just eloped and they lived their life. So there's a lot of a lot of things that happened that were that are a lot of fun. Another game that I really like is um, is a talk show. So you can have students either be a character or you can have them be an expert in a certain thing. And then you do sort of like a talk show kind of thing and you can decide whether you're more of, um, you know, a Jerry Springer or a Dr. Phil or an Oprah in your talk show style. And you interview them. And that is something where you get just really great uh, responses and stuff, especially when students are not not characters, but concepts or ideas, or they're experts on certain things. We did one once where um, one of the students was like a refrigerator or a toaster or something for some reason. And they were so clever with their responses about just saying like for the toaster, they were like, yeah, I just like to pop up sometimes and, you know, come around to this. And it was, it was just, it's just like <laughs> that way of getting into that creative space where you're not thinking logically. And I think some of that in some ways is the, is the key to it where you can you can be thinking about higher concepts but not in a logical way if that makes sense 
So what do you say to professors and teachers who are really tempted by this and come back to that first thing you said, they feel pressed Mm -hmm. for time? So I think that you have to make choices about what the most important or best information to do in these formats is. And it doesn't necessarily take more time if you target it and you decide, like, I'm going to take, if this is the most important concept of the year or the most important concept of the week or whatever it is, you know, you're going to take one piece of it this week for this concept. We're going to take half an hour and do it this way. I think that if you continue to do that, that you will see results. And again, you've got to start from the beginning with little things to do all along the way. You've got to keep people in motion because once they come to rest, then it's very, very hard to get them get them moving again. But I think, and I think that in some ways our educational system has kind of come to this place of rest where we feel like, oh no, this is working, but it's not. <laughs> it's not really working, you know? And there's a lot yeah. of evidence to show where it's not working, you know? Just because we feel more comfortable with it and we feel like it's working does not actually mean that it's the best choice. I'm really inspired. Kerrigan Sullivan, (laughs) thank you for talking with me on With Good Reason. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. Kerrigan Sullivan is a theater professor at John Tyler Community College, which is becoming Bright Point Community College. For unique handmade gifts for book and art lovers in your life, visit the Virginia Center for the Book Raucous Auction online. You'll find artist-made prints, books, experiences, and one-of-a-kind works through November 4th. Go to vabookcenter.org. Support for With Good Reason is provided by the University of Virginia Health System, uvahealth.com. With Good Reason is produced by Virginia Humanities, which acknowledges the Monica Nation, the original people of the land and waters of our home in Charlottesville, Virginia. Our production team is Allison Quantz, Matt Darrow, Lauren Francis, and Jamal Milner. Maya Neer and Cassandra Deering are our interns. For the podcast, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening.